conference work on the National Defense Authorization Act for 2024 proceeds, even as nothing else in Congress seems to be working. As always, the NDAA has provisions affecting defense contractors. My next guest says that sometimes good intentions aren't matched by good legislation. The president and CEO of the Professional Services Council, David Berto, joins me now. And David, before we get to the NDAA, just a couple of thoughts on the fact that two, three weeks have passed since the advent of the continuing resolution. And really, things look exactly as they did before the last potential shutdown. And doesn't seem to be a lot happening in the next few weeks remaining. Well, Tom, thank you for having me. And, and you're right. One of the interesting things about a government shutdown, of course, is you can actually get into one without doing anything. Uh, you can't get out of it without doing something, but you can get into it just by Congress not acting to pass anything. And we came very close to that back on September 30th, uh, obviously just at the last possible minute, the last possible hour, really, the 11th hour of the evening there before the president signed the uh, continuing resolution. So what are the prospects? I mean, it's still a month away before the uh, expiration date of the current CR, but the House is now two weeks without a speaker. No work can be done without that. And even if you have a speaker, it's not at all clear what legislation is going to pass that will keep us open. So obviously, from a government contractor's point of view, we're taking very seriously the need to prepare for the possibility of another government shutdown. And we learned a little bit from the run-up back at the end of September. All right. Well, we'll have to see what happens there. I mean, right now, let's see if there's a speaker. You know, they were voting today, and perhaps there will be a speaker, then maybe something can happen. But the NDAA conference, people are working, they're talking anyhow. But you found a couple of things deep in there that you feel may not actually get the goal that you agree with that Congress is after. And one of those is the notice of mergers and acquisitions that normally go to the Justice Department or the Federal Trade Commission, also going to the Defense Department. What's that all about? Well, first of all, it, you're right. It, every year we're wrestling with the question of what will the National Defense Authorization look like. It's almost the only constant, right, other than appropriations. Congress has passed the NDAA every year now for 60 years. So it's something that becomes a vehicle for a lot of other legislation since it is a reliable bill that will be signed by the president. PSC always has some concerns, but this year has a new twist. You know, uh, there are provisions that the intent is something with which we agree and it makes sense. Uh, in this case, the section from the Senate, Section 832, would require companies to include DOD in the notices that they file with Justice and FTC about pending mergers or, or acquisitions. And what could be bad about that? Let DOD know as well, especially if they're going to be affected by it. They're going to need to act on it. But it turns out that inside the provision, as often happens, there's some additional language there. And it actually opens up what's covered by these merger or acquisition reporting requirements to be something way more than mergers and acquisitions. It could be teaming agreements. It could be strategic alliances. It could be a whole host of things that go well beyond the traditional mergers and acquisitions. None of that, as far as I can tell, was pushed for by the federal government. But if enacted, this would be hard to implement, and it's not clear to me what the advantage of that would be. First of all, it would flood the notification process with numerous, I mean, teaming agreements are formed for almost every contract you bid on, right? And how do you put a value on the teaming agreement? Because those reporting requirements have a threshold. It's got to be X amount of dollars, depending on the size of the company, et cetera, and the size of the deal. Sure. Um, well, it's hard to tell what they're really worried about, I guess, with this provision. But I think maybe the fundamental fear is just the shrinking defense industrial base. And so anything that looks like it could maybe affect that, they want to know about. 
that could be, although, you know, teaming agreements are the strongest way to, to increase that competition and keep it going. Because if one company by itself is not able to compete with somebody else, a teaming agreement is the way you get that competition. And, you know, we do have problems across the federal government of multiple different conflicting rules governing competing uh, teaming agreements for different contracts, uh, especially government-wide acquisition contracts. But none of this makes any sense. And so we believe that, in fact, the provision should be changed to uh, eliminate these new definitions and these new categories of reporting requirements. We're speaking with David Berteau, president and CEO of the Professional Services Council. The other provision in here has to do with progress payments tied to performance, but what it is they consider performance seems a little off. Well, you know, in the federal government, and especially this is true in the Defense Department, progress payments are an important element of, of contract financing because it takes so long to complete some of these contracts and deliver the results. Uh, you know, an aircraft carrier or an airplane that takes years to, to construct that uh, the companies can't finance the whole thing, especially since the cost of financing is not an allowable cost. So the government pays payments based upon the progress that you've made towards the final delivery. This is actually a resurrection of something that was proposed about five years ago, which was to tie progress payments to something more than just progress towards producing and delivering the results, right? And so it makes sense to tie progress payments to those performance. But if you read the provision, it would actually have criteria that's not about performance, uh, not about delivering systems on, on time or on budget. It's about input measures like business systems or subcontracting goals, you know, the important elements of contract compliance, but we've got plenty of mechanisms to mandate and track contract compliance. Why not have progress payments tied towards actual progress? Yeah, wouldn't that be a great concept? The next thing you know, it'll be how many electric cars do your employees bring to the government sites? And that'll be the, the measure of whether you get money or not, perhaps. I'm kidding. But it sounds kind of like the types of measures they're looking at and not really budget performance of the system you're delivering. And, you know, we still have a problem with inflation in the government contracting business. You know, the president's got a pay raise coming through. It's in the in the bills that Congress is passing and the president can do it for federal civilians unless Congress objects it. That pay raise is 5.2 percent for fiscal year 2024, which we're in right now. There's no equivalent increase in recognition of the worker costs that contractors are incurring, which are actually up 18% now since the start of COVID. So uh, we were happy to see a provision in the NDAA that still allows the government to recognize these costs and where funds are available to arrange to compensate companies for those increased costs. We haven't seen that exercise very much, but at least the provision is still in the bill. All right. But the NDAA has to pass. And the question is, are they making any progress? No one really knows at this point if they're making progress on the sticking point, which has nothing to do with any of this, but whether the Defense Department pays for transportation for abortion services for service members. That seems to be what has the two chambers of Congress apart. So who's going to blink? Every year, of course, there are provisions of varying degrees of difficulty in these conferences, and there's hundreds of provisions between the House and the Senate version. There are things that can be worked out at the staff level. There are issues that need to rise to the level of the staff directors, uh, and then there are issues that need to go all the way to the chairs and ranking members. I suspect that some of these social issues will, in fact, be uh, those that have to go maybe even all the way to the leadership of the House and Senate. And of course, without leadership on the House, that's going to be difficult to resolve. So we have great hope that we can get a National Defense Authorization Act and get it done. 
By the way, those negotiations will continue, whether there's a shutdown or not. Congress will probably keep going on that. But we're going to watch this closely from here on out. But if there is a conference report and they agree on a bill, the House will have to have a speaker, though, right, to be able to vote on it. Well, back, this is back to, you know, will we will we get a speaker? Will we have a shutdown? I mean, the House is going to be voting. We're going to see how that comes out. I learned a long time ago, Tom, not to build my plans around my ability to predict the outcome of votes. And so we're going to be there as well. But, you know, until then, the, the preparation for a possible shutdown back to that, we know that there's guidance that's been prepared for contracting officers, but that's not been shared with the contractors. And so we don't actually know what to expect in a shutdown. Contracts keep going unless there's a reason to stop. But sometimes the government provides a reason to stop, even if you don't need one. Well, I say what can't stop at all is just supplies of 155 millimeter howitzer shells. Somehow those have to keep coming. Well, this is this adds an interesting twist because, you know, the funding for Ukraine was left out of the CR. Right. So uh, that's going to dissipate rather quickly. And we're not quite sure what options the administration has. Obviously, the situation in Israel calls for action as well. But without a functioning House of Representatives, it's very difficult. You can't even get a resolution of disapproval. Uh, out of the House, even though I'm sure it would pass with quite a wide margin of vote. We're hoping that Congress will get its act together and get back to regular order. But from where we are, we're going to have to wait and see. David Berto is president and CEO of the Professional Services Council. Thanks so much. My pleasure, Tom. And we'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive wherever you get your podcasts. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. As the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency's Chief People Officer, Elizabeth Comstetter sees a focus on people as absolutely crucial to her leadership style. Comstetter joined Shane Canfield, WEPA CEO, to reflect on her years of experience leading in the federal human capital space. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Elizabeth Kolmstetter, Chief People Officer at the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency. Elizabeth, welcome. Thank you. Great to be here. In your current position at CISA, one of your responsibilities is ensuring a people-first culture. Explain what that is, and what's the role of leadership in creating and shaping that culture? Yes, at CISA, really paramount to our culture is a people-first driven aspect so that we are really looking at how do we accomplish our mission through our people. And in order to do that, we really value our people. We want them to feel empowered and supported and uh, respected and also that their managers care about them. So well-being is important. Psychological safety in the workplace is important so that all voices and ideas are heard. So I like to call it our North Star. Having a people-first culture really starts with the people in order to get our incredibly difficult mission accomplished. In terms of leadership, which is a great question, I think we all know that culture is really driven by leadership and the, the behaviors that we allow and we uh, you know, uh, reinforce in our leaders. So we really work at making sure that our leaders are bringing out the best in their people every day. So again, that they feel they can bring their voice, especially an opinion that might not go along with the majority of a group, so that we get that diverse perspective, we get those different ideas and experiences 
And that's really where we find that it's important that leaders are purposefully bringing out their talent on their teams to enable our mission. Yeah, excellent. We're, we're going through a, a culture project at our work. Oh, great. Yeah, it's, um, it's been six months in the making, and it's going really well, but it is work. Yes. And it requires from the top down. So I'm, I'm also involved in that. I hear you. Great. Throughout your career, you piloted many different talent management programs, including at NASA, the CIA, the FBI, just to name a few, and you have an amazing career. What have you learned or how have you might have changed along the way in creating and leading those programs? Yes, and I, I, I am so honored to have had a career in public service across multiple federal agencies, always in the realm of human resources and workforce performance. And I think because I study organizations and people in them, I've come to realize, particularly in the federal government, that many of our programs are really grounded in the industrial era thinking, that this is organizationally structured in a hierarchy with boxes and lines on charts, uh, with the center being around jobs and what do we need to get this job done in terms of skills and training. And what I found is that we're really not in the industrial era anymore where we would promote the smartest people who knew that work and they would then tell the people on their team how to do things and oversee that work. We're now in a digital era and the information era where work gets done collaboratively across geographic boundaries and certainly across org charts. So uh, we like to call it networks um, or hierarchies, and we really need to, again, unleash people so they can find those other people who are working on similar problems or have the right ideas. And so I really like to think of our work now in the talent programs being human-centered. It's more about the user and the experience than about the rules and regulations. So although we have to have rules and regulations, certainly in human resources, is that person experiencing what they need and getting what they need for their role at that time? So not so much on the job, but on the person. So for example, we're recruiting. What's the applicant experiencing? Because if they're not having a good experience with our organization from the time we're recruiting them, they're going to go work for somebody else. Same thing with like first-time supervisors. We know they need certain training, but telling them to sit in a class for one week and then hope a year from now they'll remember what they learned to apply, that's not really human-centered. The human-centered is what do they need when they need it and building modules or, or just-in-time training and bringing that to the people, to that user, as they need it. So that's really, I think, the most important focus of talent programs today in this era to enable the workers to be the best they can be in their, in their roles. Excellent. New thinking. Um, this is always an interesting question. Has there been a time when as a leader that you've made a mistake? And what is that? And um, I think most important, what did you take away from that? What did you learn from that? Well, I kind of chuckle because I think as leaders, we have to learn to recognize our mistakes, admit our mistakes, and that they are opportunities to learn. And so uh, I've had to do my own self-reflection on, on making mistakes and when things don't turn out the way that I expected them to. Um, makes me think of a time when I was at the Transportation Security Administration and I was a supervisor. And I was really embroiled with my program. I was the technical leader of it. I understood it. I'd run it for years. 
and I was making a briefing for a decision that had to be made about this program that was very near and dear to me. And I presented the briefing uh, to one of the very senior people in the agency. And I think there are about 20 people in the room. And I had gone through the briefing, answered all the questions. And that leader then said, okay, I'm going to go around the room and get everybody's opinion. And then everybody gets to vote, which kind of set me aback because there were people in that room that didn't have any technical knowledge about my program. She even turned to the executive assistant there, taking notes on the meeting, and said, go ahead, and I want to hear from you. And I realized, in hindsight, I had stopped listening. I had been in transmitting all of my knowledge and what I saw to be the right way, and I was not listening to different perspectives in the room because I didn't think that, I didn't value that they were bringing any kind of input to this particular decision and it didn't go as I had hoped and I left very disappointed and was busy blaming the senior leader and how that meeting was conducted that she let all these people have opinions when they didn't know in my mind didn't know what they were talking about and so um, in reflection on that I realize and now as I've moved into more senior leadership positions I realize that was a mistake that it actually is really important to listen especially to people who have different perspectives or at a different point in the career, not just the people who know the program or the technical really well. And so that was a mistake I made, and I realized in my own sense I wasn't listening to very different opinions, and I probably should have because I would have learned more about what was needed for this program going forward than just leaving, getting, getting upset that it didn't go a certain way. So I've really practiced active listening. I've practiced making sure there's very different people on um, teams and certainly on committees or councils that we need early careers, people new to the agency, mm -hmm. people who haven't walked in the shoes of the technical workforce because they're asking questions we need to hear for these programs to be successful. Excellent. Your career in talent management means your work is very closely tied to people and even your title, chief people officer. What does that mean to you to be a leader in the federal system with that focus? Isn't that a great title? I just love the title chief people officer, and I think it's my dream job, really, to be focused on people and culture and the workforce strategy for the whole agency. And I'm just so excited to be at CISA at this point in time. We're only four years young as an agency, so we're really still creating who we're going to become as an agency and what is our culture and what kind of people and talent do we need to be sure we have to be successful. So it's very exciting for me to be in this role with an intentional focus on culture because it's one of those things, if you leave it to chance and you kind of hope it goes the way you want it to, it probably won't. So by building programs, including leadership development programs, including um, any kind of training and learning and career growth and um, engagement programs and listening programs, that's what's really key for, I think, for our agency and particularly me in this role. Um, I think in the federal government, we got used to doing annual survey, the Federal Employee Viewpoint Survey that OPM, Office of Personnel Management, runs every year. So we would do a survey and we'd read it and we'd say, oh, this is the opinion of our people. And then we would do action plans and then we'd roll out certain activities that we would hope would, in, would increase engagement. In this era, you can't do once a year 
and understand what your employees' experiences are, what they need, what's working well, and what needs to improve. We need active, uh, ongoing listening programs. So one of the things we're doing at CISA is having more pulse surveys, having more focus groups and what we call sensing sessions, expecting our leaders to have office hours where anybody can come and just talk about what's going well, what do they need, how, how are things going um, because I, we feel like it is an ongoing need to hear from our people. And I think in this role and over the years of serving, I've also realized there's never a one-size-fits-all. You know, we think certain people need certain things at certain times in their career. There's no one-size-fits-all. Neither can we also customize everything to every individual. So there's got to be a sweet spot in building really great talent programs, but also, like I said, thinking about, can we do this in modules? Can we make it a menu? Can we do it just in time as people need it so they can practice the new skill or knowledge in their role? So I think we have such great opportunity, again, with the technology that enables us to really um, focus on how we connect people with their work and their team to get things done in, in very new ways. This is always an interesting question. Is there a figure, either from your personal life, your past, somewhere in history generally, that inspired you, your leadership style, um, how you view leadership? There are many figures who have been very inspirational to me, but there is one that sticks out, and that's my mother, Paula Brownlee, who has been a very inspiring leader to me all my life. And I think because, first and foremost, she had a strong family and a strong career. And that's something I always wanted. And I saw her first as my mother, but then I also saw her as a leader in her career and in academia, which was her chosen field. But I always knew her family came first. And as I saw how she balanced different family needs with also a a growing and more and more prominent um, career positions in leadership, that she had to balance that. And I think I learned from her that you can have both. You have to, you have to focus on different things through your career um, and through your life, but that you don't have to trade one for the other. Um, I've been married, happily married, for 32 years, and I'm a mother of twins who are almost 24 years old. So, and I've had a great career in public service. So I think that having her as a role model has really helped me um, find my own courage, find my own confidence, and find my own voice in how I can prioritize the things that are most important to me so that I can actually balance both family and career. And you're doing it well. You're, Thank uh, you. Having known you now for seven or eight years yeah. um, and worked alongside you, uh, your passion is infectious. Thank you. Your uh, intelligence and, and the thoughtfulness with which you approach uh, all of these issues, it's... Uh, It's an honor for you to be here, and thank you for your time. Thank you very much. I'm Shane Canfield, CEO at WEPA, and until next time, have a great day. Find the full podcast and future episodes of Lessons in Leadership on the Federal News Network app and anywhere you enjoy your podcasts.